Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC, and this episode is a Pillar and Ground confession episode where we seek to further understand and apply the truths in our Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the third episode on the Trinity, and rightfully so. And this episode is really the so what, the application. What are the implications for our lives when we consider the heavy lifting we've been doing in doctrine on the Trinity? And today, I think a lot of what I will say will come from Michael Reeves' work, Delighting in the Trinity, an introduction to the Christian faith. I highly commend this book to you. And so I will be reflecting on much of what I learned from that book. But there will be two main implications for our lives that I would like to bring to us today. As we begin, I want us to think about what Michael Reeves said. The Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking. The triune being of God is the vital oxygen of Christian life and joy. If the Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking, the vital oxygen, then to ignore it or to misunderstand it would be detrimental, disastrous to our journey as Christians in this world. And thus, I'd like for us to think about two implications. First, Trinitarian doctrine calls us away from mere law-keeping and into the very love and life of God. As Michael Reeves says, before God ever created, ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God, our God, was a father loving his son. And so when John 17 verse 24 reads, as Jesus says, you loved me before the creation of the world, we see the father eternally loving his son. And so at the heart of who God is, is a relational, life-giving, deeply loving father. And I want us all to know that the most foundational thing in God is not some abstract idea, but the fact that he is a life-giving, eternally loving father. I'd like to read a good number of verses and, and maybe just have you really take this in about this. This is who God fundamentally is. If you're driving, don't close your eyes. But if you're sitting still, just close your eyes and listen as I open the scriptures to you to show God as Father. In Deuteronomy 1, 31, it says, There you saw in the desert how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. Later in Deuteronomy 8, 5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. In Psalm 103, 13, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Jeremiah three nineteen, I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. 
Isaiah 64, 8 proclaims, Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are the work of your hand. Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, beginning, Our Father in heaven. In John 20, 17, Jesus says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead, I love this what Jesus says, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Romans 15 says that so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8.6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. Hebrews, endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? I read those, one, because anything we believe must be rooted in the Scripture. But to understand this Trinitarian implication, that Trinitarian doctrine calls us away from mere law-keeping into the love and the very life of God as Father, is key. Before all things, God is not primarily a creator or a ruler. He is Father. And to be the Father then means to love and to give out life, to beget the Son. Richard Sibbs says this, If God had not a communicative spreading goodness, he would never have created the world. He says the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were happy in themselves and enjoyed one another before the world was. Apart from the fact that God delights to communicate and spread his goodness, there never would have been a creation or redemption. I love this simple sentence. The creation was a free choice born out of nothing but Trinitarian love. The creation is the overflowing love of the Trinity. Further, Reeves asserts that many like to compare the Father to a fountain ever bursting out with life and love. The Father must give out life. That is who he is. It's not something he has or one of his moods. He is love. And God could not be love if there is no one to love. He could not be father without a child. God did not create because he needed someone to love. The Trinity existed eternally together, loving each other. No, God is love. It's his very essence. And so as we consider Trinitarian doctrine and the Father eternally loving the Son, that when we are in relationship with the Trinity, it calls us away from mere love law-keeping into life-giving and offering and enjoyment of that love. Richard of St. Victor, a young Scot in the 12th century, argued this. If God were just one person, he would not be intrinsically loving, since for all eternity he would have nobody to love. This is simple, but life-changing. Richard of St. Victor says, It is not that God becomes loving. 
God is love as three persons eternally in one being. And therefore, as Reeves writes, thus single person gods, having spent eternity alone, are inevitably self-centered beings. And so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything to exist. But the triune God is not lonely, but is, is loving for all eternity as the Father has loved the Son and the Spirit. And the God who loves to have an outgoing image of himself and his Son loves to have many images of his love. And so because of the very essence of God, God is love, something happened far deeper to us than rule-breaking and misbehavior. As we fell into sin and misery, we perverted love. We rejected him. The one who made us to love and be loved by him. Therefore, St. Augustine said, our problem is not so much that we have behaved wrongly, but that we have been drawn to love wrongly. Made in the image of God, the God of love, we are always motivated by love. And that is why Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They sinned, and I might add we sinned, because they and we love something more than him. Augustine would say, thus merely altering our behavior, as Pelagius suggests, will do no good. Something much more profound is needed. Our hearts must be turned back. And a little over a thousand years later, Luther picked up Augustine's line of thought to define the sinner as, quote, the person curved in on himself, end quote. That as fallen human beings, sinners, we no longer are outgoingly loving like God, no longer looking to God, but inward looking, self-obsessed, devilish, as it were. And so Michael Reeves says, such a person might well behave morally or righteously, but all they did would simply express their fundamental love for themselves. Thus, true Trinitarian doctrine calls us away from mere law-keeping into the love and the life of God, and this means untwisting us as we are naturally bent on ourselves in self-love. That is sanctification, to untwist us from self-love, from our own independence. Reeves says, if I am to be anything like the outgoing and outward-looking Father, Son, and Spirit, the Spirit must take my eyes off myself, which he does by winning me to Christ. And Reeves says, of course, if God himself was not outward-looking, the Spirit would not need to bother, and he almost certainly wouldn't. If God only wanted me to live under his government, then the Spirit, if he could be bothered, would be more concerned simply to help me be a law-abiding citizen. My self-love need never be challenged. In fact, I could nurture it very happily by fixating on just how well I am keeping the rules. But the Holy Spirit comes with a far deeper purpose, that I might know the Son, that I might, I might be like him, Meaning that 
The whole point is that my eyes look out to him, knowing him is life, and looking to him is what enlivens. Trinitarian doctrine clearly calls us away from mere law-keeping into the very love and the life of God. And that is a glorious implication of all the hard work for good, true doctrine. There's a second one. Trinitarian doctrine calls us away from uniformity and into unity with diversity. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18 states, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Think about this with the Trinity. If we had a single person God, his oneness would lead to the goal of sameness. Alone for eternity without any beside him, why would a single person God value others and their differences? Reeves reflects, think how it works for Allah. Under his influence, the once diverse cultures of Nigeria, Persia, and Indonesia are made deliberately and increasingly what? The same. Islam presents a complete way of life for individuals, nations, and cultures, binding them into one way of praying, one way of marrying, one way of buying, one way of fighting, one way of relating. Even some would say one way of eating and dressing. But Trinitarian truth verbally establishes that oneness for the Trinity triune God means unity. Yes, it is the oneness of God that Paul invokes when he is calling the Ephesian church to unity in Ephesians 4. And as the Father is absolutely one with the Son, yet is not his Son, so Jesus prays that believers might be one, but he doesn't pray that we might all be the same. For there is diversity in the unity, just as is in the Trinity. God created male and female in the image of this God, and with many other good differences between us, we come together valuing the way the triune God has made us each unique. The Spirit wins male and female, black and white, Jew and Gentile, all to the same uniting love and truth of God, which spills over in us in a heartfelt love of one another, much like the Trinity. And therefore, Trinitarian truth calls us away from mere uniformity and into unity with diversity. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and then 17 through 20 says, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. At the heart of Jesus' high priestly prayer to his Father for believers is the request that they may be one, as we are one. John seventeen twenty two, Not the same, but one. Unity amidst diversity in the body of Jesus Christ, united around the truth and love of God. 
Michael Reeves' conclusion to delighting in the Trinity is spectacular, and I will read it to conclude this episode. What is your Christian life like? What is the shape of your gospel, your faith? In the end, it will all depend on what you think God is like. Who God is drives everything. In the early 4th century, Arius went for a pre-cooked God, ready-baked in his mind. Ignoring the way, the truth, and the life, he defined God without the Son. And the fallout was catastrophic. Because without the Son, God cannot truly be a Father. And thus left alone, he is not truly love. Thus he can have no fellowship to share with us, no Son to bring us close, no Spirit through whom we might know him. Arius was left with a very thin gruel, a life of self-dependent effort under the all-seeing eye of a distant, loveless God. The tragedy is that we all think like Arius every day. We think of God without the Son. We think of God and not the Father of the Son. But from there, it really doesn't take long before you find that you are just a whole lot more interesting than this quote-unquote abstract God. And that's what leads us to be curved in on ourselves. However, starting with Jesus, Athanasius found himself with a God who could not have been more different from the God of Arius. It wasn't that he found himself with some extra small print in his description of God, quote-unquote, the Trinity. No, Athanasius had a God of love, a kind father who draws us to share his eternal love and fellowship. And the choice remains, which God will we have? Which God will we proclaim? Without Jesus the Son, we cannot know that God is truly a loving father. Without Jesus the Son, we cannot know him as our loving father. But as Luther discovered through Jesus, we may know that God is a father. And we may look into his fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly he loves us. That would warm our hearts, setting them aglow. Yes, it would. And more, it would bring about reformation. And might I add, renewal. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Pillar and Ground.